Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 17th episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Josh Brown. Josh is a financial advisor and the CEO of Ritholtz Wealth Management, an independent RIA in New York City that manages almost $500 million of assets. Though for many in the financial advisor community, Josh is better known by his blog, The Reformed Broker, and his prolific presence on social media, including nearly half a million Twitter followers. But what's fascinating about Josh is not just the eye-popping statistics of his blog readership and social media following, but how he's been able to turn it into real client business, as the firm has grown by almost $400 million in AUM in just the past three years, and now fields about 10 to 30 inbound new prospect inquiries every week, driven primarily by the firm's blogging and social media presence. In this episode, Josh shares his story about how he got started in the financial service industry as a broker doing cold calling for nearly a decade before he finally decided to make the switch to become an investment advisor, and how the trajectory of his entire career was changed by deciding to rack up some credit card debt to go to a financial conference where he ultimately met his future business partner, and how he positions himself and his firm today to ensure that he not only spends time working in the business, but also working on the business to grow it. Be certain to listen to the end when Josh shares some of the books that have been most influential in his career and the advice he offers to anyone, whether a newer advisor or an experienced one, on how you can get started if you want to build your own digital presence with blogging and social media and why it's not about just social media alone. Remember, you can also find a list of all the books and other resources mentioned in this 17th episode of the podcast at kitsis.com slash 17. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with the reformed broker, Josh Brown. Welcome, Josh Brown, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Hi, Michael. Hi, Josh. How are you? I'm doing great, man. Thank you for having me as a guest. I, I, I'm a fan of the podcast. Awesome. I'm, I've been looking forward to the episode because you, know, you and your firm are, I think, overwhelmingly like the the biggest player in our industry around social media and blogging for advisors, you know, your blog, your Twitter account, you're what now, like half a million followers, give or take a little. Yeah, we literally never shut up. <laughs> and your partner, Barry Ritholtz, who is, I think, what's still by numbers, like the most widely read blog in the advisor community, at least I've been able to measure. And, and so like, there's so much media, like there's so much industry buzz for years now that like flogging all of us as advisors that you have to get on social media and you have to do blogging and then people that say it works and people are like, yeah, I tried and it doesn't work. I, I couldn't figure out anyone better to bring on to the podcast to talk about that than than you because you and Barry and the other guys in your firm are, are like truly living it and, and driving some results. So I, I want to talk a little today about how you've been able to turn some of that into actual client business. But but maybe to start, can you just talk a little bit about the advisory firm that exists today? Like, w what does it look like today? Sure. At the current moment, we're about three years and six months since we founded, which was September 2013. We were four people and an assistant. We are now 14 people total. And I think nine are client-facing advisors 
And then we've got chief of operations. We've got really a, an office manager who's managing essentially five offices in terms of you know paperwork, administration, et cetera. And I've got full-time director of research, Michael Batnick. A lot of people listening to the podcast probably know who he is. And then it's Barry and I. And then the, the advisors in my firm are certified financial planners, You know the people that are facing clients all day, every day are, in my opinion, the most qualified people in the country to do that. I, I'm crazy about CFPs. I am not one myself, but the value that that brings to our accounts is immeasurable, in my opinion. So that's how we're currently set up, and, and everyone's got a specific job. But a lot of what our specific jobs are, a lot of that stuff ends up being content. I think we live in, in kind of a, a glass house of our own construction you know, for better or for worse, but we we like it that way. And so, what what does it look like in terms of metrics? Like, do you you an AUM firm? Do you look at like AUM clients? How do you look at sizing of the firm? So we, I think we're like right at five hundred million in assets right now. We started at ninety, like like maybe we're four ninety or something. If we're not five hundred today, you know, give it a week or two. But we're growing really fast. I think we were called the the sixth fastest growing RIA in the country last year by, I want to say, Financial Advisor Magazine. I don't know what it's going to be for this year, but it's really exciting. And you know, a lot of the growth is coming from just this idea that you know we, we say what we think. We're fairly forceful with our opinions. We're not trying to appeal to everyone, but the people that our message appeals to, there's no one else saying things the way that we're saying them. And that was a little bit uncalculated. Now it's maybe more calculated, but that's really what's going on. I would say that in a typical week, I don't know if I'm jumping the gun here. I would say that in a typical week, we're getting somewhere between 10 and 30 inbound inquiries just from our web presence and, and media presence. And not they're not all good fits, but we'll talk about that. So how many clients, like 500 million of AUM, give or take a little, how many clients is that? It's a few hundred households. I think we're, we're at, our, our average account is a million. It might be slightly higher, but it's something like that. Okay. So about 500 households and a million AUM average, give or take a little. And so for them, you're doing essentially like the, the good old financial planning plus investment management because the advisors are CFPs, but you're also managing money. So it's interesting. A lot of the the inbound interest in the firm comes in based on our investment opinions. You know, I'm, I'm on CNBC. Barry's on Bloomberg. We're blogging about markets more than we're blogging about financial planning. Let's say, but you know, what was I going to say? <laughs> so, so, uh, so in terms of how many are are engaging or doing financial planning, right? So the spark that that gets somebody to want to talk to us might be about our our market outlook or or investing, but. The first conversation we're having with people is a fit call. So basically, look, this is what we think works for investors. This is how we deliver it. Is that a fit with what you're looking for? And, and, and that has nothing to do with you know, investment management. We actually are not talking about a portfolio with anyone until at least the third conversation, but more likely the fourth. And that's after extensive discussions, whether on the phone or in person or, or via web, about their financial plan. So I would say we're traditional from the sense that we're leading with planning. Maybe we're non-traditional from the sense that people are first coming to us for the asset management side. So what is your 
asset management process look like? I mean, what do you do? Are you, are you guys actively trading of the kind of stuff that you talk about and write about sometimes? I mean, what, what does that investment management process look like? Michael, we are trading around the clock. I'm trading right now while I'm on order with you. Fantastic. Wait, ha- like hang on one sec. Get me done on that 10 block. All right. Sorry. So we well, we are pretty vocal about what we think is the right way to invest. It doesn't mean the only way, but I think we make a pretty strong case for why what we're doing is is what's best for our clients, and we try to be really specific. We think that strategic asset allocation is really the best route for the majority of investors for the majority of their assets, but maybe not for every dollar. We've also got an in-house tactical solution that we built ourselves. We're really, really proud of it. It's typically not going to be a huge portion of someone's portfolio, but it's going to be enough that it'll make a difference and it'll it'll function as a complement to the more strategic, longer-term portion. We think the two work really well together. And then on areas where we really don't have an expertise or we don't have an, an ability to execute, we'll bring in an outside manager. So, you know, we work with an outside manager on tax-free and munis. Nobody wants Barry Ritholtz picking bonds for them in, in California. You know, we work with an equity manager. We, you know, we'll, so we'll bring in something that we're not able to do. The, the hurdle that an outside manager has to overcome in order for us to consider using them is that they have to be rules-based. We, you know, they have to be evidence-based. We have to be able to completely understand what's going to happen with our clients' money. There can't be variability in terms of, you know, this hotshot manager or this new committee that's coming in. It's really got to be something that we can back test, we can front test, we can, you know, turn upside down and and not predict what's going to happen, but just have an understanding of what we could expect, good, bad, and different. I'm curious, is like you and Barry in particular, as well as some of the other guys in your firm, like you, you write a lot about investment issues and themes, econ and macroeconomic stuff. Heck, you, you get into geopolitical stuff. So is it like notwithstanding all that stuff, when you get to the investing part, you're still not actually a fan of trading actively on that? It's still mostly a passer strategic portfolio? So I think that there's this misconception just in the world at large, and I, I've talked about this a lot. But I'll give you the Cliff Snow's version. People have this like this assumption that if news isn't actionable or if information isn't actionable, then it, that it's worthless. When in fact, we look at it the other way around. Having contextual information about what's going on in the economy, in the markets, in the world, between asset classes, in the industry, having that understanding is more important than actionable information because it forms, it helps you form the way that you think about the results you're seeing, the risk you're taking. You really have to have all of that context. And by the way, paradoxically, the more actionable information you see, the more you realize it's not really actionable or it shouldn't really be actionable. So the way I like to phrase it, somebody somebody once asked me, how the hell do you go on CNBC, listen to these guys talking about you know, trading intraday every single day and not have it affect – you know, how you feel about longer term investing or, or not have it impact your emotions, etc. And, you know, I'm fascinated by markets and I love picking stocks and all of that. But uh, the best explanation I can give to that is to say or is to cite 
There's a movie, The First Avengers. Tony Stark is picking on Banner, the guy that turns into the Hulk, trying to get him mad. And he says, how do you contain it? How do you control your anger? How do you keep from hulking out every time somebody messes with you? And then two hours go by, and finally Banner explains it to uh, Tony Stark, almost like as a, as a by the way. And he says, you want to know my secret? The secret is I'm always angry. So it's like... My secret to containing my emotions and, and, and to not overreacting and, and not make bad decisions is that I am constantly in the midst of market commentary, research reports, analyst upgrades and downgrades, all of the things that, you know, for somebody that, that isn't really swimming in it, these things might affect them, they might make them do something, they might impact them. For me, I'm so absorbed in it that I know. Most of it is not worthwhile for me, for me to react to. I, I've seen too much. And But does that create a disconnect with the kinds of people who – maybe who contact the firm? I mean just imagining like, hey, Josh, saw you on Halftime Report. That was awesome with the investment stuff that you're talking about. I want you guys to help me manage my money. Tell, you what, tell me about what you do and what you guys are trading right now. And, and you're like, oh, well, we actually we're, – we're, we're trading pretty much nothing and we rarely ever do because we're, we're passive and strategic. Like – how does that conversation go? That's my favorite question, and I get it, and I get it all the time. So for some of those people, we're just not going to be a good fit because they're looking for something that we're not able to do. We can have an argument whether or not anyone's able to do it, but that's that's probably less interesting. But I think my role uh, – and by the way, I think it's the best show on financial television because they'll put somebody like me in between someone who's trading options – on one side and on the other side, somebody who's a fund of hedge fund manager. And just the, the idea that we can have all these different perspectives. So without a doubt, I'm coming to that conversation You know, each day that I'm on. I'm coming to that conversation with my very own unique take and my take is a wealth management take. And oftentimes, if you actually listen to what I'm saying, it's don't panic. Don't necessarily think that this is something significant. Here's why this particular piece of news that everyone's carrying on about. Here's why. Let me give. Let me put it into context. So I'm doing a lot of that on the show, and I enjoy doing it because it actually helps me be a better advisor. You know, Michael and I work on the research so that I have substantive things to say about the issues of the day. And then the other thing to keep in mind, Michael, is that look, I'm a little bit of a of a missionary. You know, I could I could walk into an FPA conference. And do my spiel, but who cares? Everyone agrees with me already. So I, I think, look, you want to talk so to investors. You want to get out there to consumers and. I want to talk to investors where they are. I want to, and I might not, and look, my perspective may not be relevant for every viewer of financial television. Half the viewers are in the business. So I'm definitely, you know, I might be relevant to them because they're interested in my take, but we're not going to ever do business together. But I want to talk to. You know, investors where they are, and they are on Twitter, they're on LinkedIn, they're on the web, they're reading blogs, they're reading, you know, the Wall Street Journal, and I write for Fortune, but they're watching TV. And so I'm really lucky. I get this great show that I get to be a part of, and I get to kind of come to the show with a wealth manager's perspective, which is very different than the hedge fund guy, the trader guy, the options guy. So it's, I think it's a pretty cool situation to be in. So what does a typical week look like for you? Because I mean, you, you've got TV stuff on a regular basis, you know, 100,000 tweets or whatever it is, right? Lots of social media. You're writing, you're fielding 10 to 30 inbound inquiries every week. Apparently, there are some clients to service as well, because you got a couple hundred of those. Like, 
What does your actual world look like from day to day through the week? All right. So I wake up. I start with a lot of carbs. Like, <laughs> no, I. Oh, man. I, man you're, you're killing me. Like, <laughs> so uh, first of all, my week never ends. I'm working seven days a week. But it's not like I'm, I'm chained to the grindstone. Uh, genuinely, this is my passion. I'm, I'm very interested in understanding investing markets. So like when I'm not working, I'm reading a book. There's a good chance it's a book about investing for like for pleasure. So like Sunday nights, I'm working. I'm like I'm researching. I'm thinking about what I want to talk about that week, what I want to get across to clients, what I want to get across to my advisors in, in the Monday morning meeting, etc. So this is like not a five-day-a-week a thing. And anyone that follows me knows that. I have posts going up on Saturday morning. So to say like what's my week like, I think like one of the most important things I do this week is probably the easier way to answer it. So day-to-day, I'm not client-facing. One of the one of the insights that, uh, by the way, my director of financial planning is Chris Venn. You know Chris. Chris invented probably half of what we're doing. Chris was the first person to come into the firm in 2012, sit with Barry and I. Before we even started, we were a practice at someone else's firm. And Chris said, you guys need to be working on the business, not in the business. And I didn't really understand that. Chris had come through the Envision program at Wells Fargo, which was like this ninja you know, like uh, like Navy SEAL training for wealth management, business development. And Chris brought a lot of those principles to us. And he basically said, look, you guys, your strength is communicating with the investors, making sure they understand what they're invested in and why, and making new investors aware of the firm. That's where your focus should be. Your focus should not be on filling out account forms. It just it doesn't work. You you can't scale it, and you're not going to do a good job for your, for your clients. So bringing in Chris, Chris set up an entire client service model. He brought in like twelve four two, which is twelve proactive contacts from us a year, which is monthly. Four meetings about the portfolio, two planning meetings, and then implementing that so that our practice looks more like a dentist office. What it looked like before Chris joined. It was Barry, myself, and an assistant, and it looked like a Civil War hospital. It was like a triage tent. It was like my uh, CRM was a, was a legal pad. The phones were ringing off the hook. Don't forget, Barry was the guy that called the crash and then called the bottom, like literally in the New York Times. And so the phones are ringing off the hook. I'm trying to answer as many as I can. I'm dealing with the clients that are calling in. I'm making no outbound calls because there's just not enough time in the day. And I'm opening accounts like literally answering the phone. Hey, I've been reading Barry for seven years. How do I get $4 million to you? So that was like the start of it. And it was just out of control. And it left very little time to think about the portfolio, think about you know client communication. So Chris came in, removed me largely from that process. I, I turned over the relationships to him. There's a lot of trust involved. But Chris has just been an incredible part of the story of our firm that not a lot of people know about. And by the way, there's there are eight, eight or nine other advisors that Chris has trained himself to do exactly what he does. So if you ask me like how do I spend a week when there's like client stuff, my communication with the clients is mostly on conference calls or clients come into town, you know, from, from out of state or in New York City. Hey, I'm coming in to see Book of Mormon with my wife. Would love to, to have lunch with you guys. Those are the types of meetings that I'm really involved with. 
so that whole like, and I like that twelve four two. So twelve twelve investment touches, four investment meetings, two planning meetings. Yeah, I, I mean that's like that's like. So then every client has the expectation of. You know when they're going to hear from us, and it's not like, oh, I haven't heard from from Chris in a while. I haven't heard from Alex in a while. They know exactly when they can expect to hear from us and in what format. And the great part about that is, Michael, as you know, there are clients that have more of an expectation than twelve or four or two. We have five investment blogs that are being updated daily. There is nothing like. There's never going to be an event. If you want I t- if you want more investment insight from your firm like here's five blog posts a day knock yourself out buddy but here's why that's really powerful as a communication tool because imagine you're just like a a client somewhere your advisor is like a guy at morgan stanley or whatever the you know the guy the morgan stanley guy has you know a billion dollar book and then you know we're in a moment like 2011 where every time a headline comes out of Europe, the, the S&P jerks 5%. So there's a Portuguese bond auction one morning, and S&P futures d- dive 3% before the open. Your client's like, oh, man, I'm reading about the, these headlines. I don't know what it means, but it's really, really scary. Gee, I sure hope my Morgan Stanley guy's on top of this. My clients don't have to, to wonder whether or not I'm on top of this because they can go to our sites anytime and they see we are on it. And it doesn't mean that we have an answer to everything that's going on, but they understand that our hand is on the wheel. We are engaged. We are not golfing. You know, we are not you know out on prospect meetings. We are we are like in the mix. So that I think that that's. Probably what the advisory firm of the future looks like. There's going to have to be someone in every wealth management firm that is like out there letting clients know that they are in the flow of what's happening. Does it get weird for prospects when they come to work with you or Barry and and it's like, yeah, so the way it works here is you don't get you don't get me or Barry. You know, I mean, you you're getting our experts, your investment expertise is infusing our portfolios. We've got a whole team here, but. I mean, it would strike me like when you guys are so out there as visible figureheads of the firm and people might be reading you and following you for a long time before they contact you even, like they form this connection to you. I feel like I know you and I want to work with you. And then they contact you and find out that's not that's not the gig. Is that a challenge? You have to spend a whole lot of time like fielding inbound inquiries from people and explaining to them that you're not actually going to be working with them? That's not really what the expectation is. I don't think that well, so first, let me back up. They are getting me. They're getting the investment committee is 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 Ritholtz as the CIO, which is probably two thirds of the inquiries are coming in for Barry. The rest of the committee, think about this. My investment committee is Barry Ritholtz, Ben Carlson, who's a monster in his own right. We'll get to him later, and Michael Batnick, and then Dan McConlog, who we haven't mentioned, who's our four hundred one k in house four hundred one k expert. But so that's the investment committee which I, I think you would agree is pretty robust. And so you are getting – if you're – it's not like I have 50 advisors here and everyone's just making up their own portfolios. We're running models. So if, you, if you're coming to me, you're getting Barry. You're, you know, you're getting Michael. You're getting Ben. You're getting the best of what we do. That's, that's first. Second, we didn't really invent this concept. If you think about like going into Ken Fisher, you're not talking to Ken. You you saw his full page ad in Forbes. You read you read books that he writes every three right. months. You you see Rick Edelman stuff. He does yeah. cool stuff. You're, you're, you're not talking to Rick. Rick. 
but you know that Ken's imprimatur and Rick's, you know, Rick's expertise is is touching all of the things that are actually elemental to the investment portfolio. Now, on the service side, you don't want to get me. I'm not a CFP. I'm a former retail broker who's just read a ton of books and has figured some stuff out. But I can't help you plan your future in the way that Chris can, in the way that you know Tony Isola can. You know, I've got incredibly talented client facing Bill Sweet. You know, these are people that have dedicated their entire day just to making sure that our firm's clients know exactly what's going on with their plan, with their portfolio. So it's a much better setup for the client to, to work directly with a certified financial planner than, you know, oh, you want to call me, you want to, you want to, you want to talk about, you know, Nike versus Under Armour. I'll have that conversation for fun. I don't think it's going to help anyone. You know what I mean? So I, I think like that insight that Chris brought, which was, look, right now you guys are building this around asset management, which is fine. It's what people are coming to you for, but you can do so much more for them if you refocus this on the plan and then just have kick-ass asset management that satisfies the requirements of the plan. So I, I think we're, we're combining those two things in a really good way. Well, and it's an interesting separation that I, I think for so many advisors, you know, we're used to being the ones that go out there and get the clients and then service the clients and work with the clients. The clients work with the firm because they wanted us because we got them and hunted them down and, and brought them in that you know, there's just the whole separation of what you guys have done. Well, I did it the other way. Don't forget. I did. I cold called for 10 years. <laughs> I I. I, I I did so that can version. You take us back. I mean, like, how did you get started in the industry? Were you like your parents were financial services and you followed in mom or dad's footsteps? No, my parents were getting divorced as I was starting my senior year of high school. And it was extremely traumatic for me because I had like this really idyllic upper middle class, let's say, upbringing on Long Island. And we went pumpkin picking and we went to Mets games and uh, I went to summer camp and you know, I had everything that a kid could, could want. I had a really great life up until I turned, let's say, 16, 17. That's always a time when we as young men handle adversity so responsibly. Maybe the worst. Well. Like the timing, the timing couldn't – I don't know. The timing couldn't be worse. Like my, I guess my dad had a girlfriend and he couldn't just couldn't wait anymore. Like he couldn't keep her on the side anymore. So he had to drop this bombshell. So I, I don't want to turn this into therapy, but I got to tell you, that really f***ed me up and – and by the way, I'm like a creative person. I'm like an artist. I'm like hypersensitive. I'm not like, you know, like this stalwart of, of calm. It's just not, it's not what I am. It's not my, it's not my fault. That's what I was, you know, these, these, these are the tools that I was born yes, with. These, these and, are the cards that were dealt to you. My, this is my personality. So, so I went off the deep end and, you know, I, I really stopped caring about really my future or anything. I had, a, I, you know, I had a hot girlfriend and I had friends that were like, you know, going into Manhattan every night with fake IDs. And I just, I got caught up in it. I got into a good, you know, I, I went to school. I didn't really do well. I didn't pay attention. I didn't really care. And then it wasn't until I was like, let's say 1920, the summer after my freshman year at school. And then I started to think like, all right, I should probably figure out 
what I want to do, but I, I really had no idea. I knew I was like creative, but I wasn't like technically skilled as an artist. So I was like, oh, I'm going to work for Disney. And then the art professor was like, yeah, but you have no ability. <laughs> <laughs> so, son, let me give you a little bit of advice. Disney creative is probably not a good idea for By you. By the way, it's, it's 1995. Do you know what happened in 1995 in, in the world of Disney? I can't remember what happened in Disney in 95. Toy Story came out. It was the first feature-length computer-animated film, and it was a monster smash hit, and the prevailing wisdom was, okay, there will not be any more – just like we're saying like, oh, driverless cars and robo-advice. So the prevailing wisdom was there won't be any more hand-drawn animation. So if you're not a computer scientist, you're wasting your time. Now, of course, the future turned out to be half that and half not that, like everything else. But so like I, I just – I was like drifting. But I, I love to read. I was definitely an autodidact. I was the kind of kid like I was in like advanced placement social studies classes and I would read like five times the amount of books we were supposed to, not because I was trying to kill the test. I didn't even care about the test just because I was so curious. So then one day my dad's like, listen, you you should uh, do an internship at this brokerage firm. I play golf with this guy. He said his son is making a million dollars a month. So I get my first. Well, that I sounds good. <laughs> I'll take one of those. <laughs> So I get my first job in the industry. I'm 19 years old. It's like a six-week summer thing, and it's at Duke and Company, which is a boiler room in Manhattan. It was like an offshoot of the guys that started Stratton. I think it was like the guys who were too crazy for Stratton even. Like so, but they were, but it was this huge booming firm. They were like 53rd and 3rd Avenue. They had an entire floor of this massive skyscraper. Everyone there was in a three piece suit. They were all getting dropped off there in limousines. So if you're like 19 years old, you don't look at that and say, oh, this is probably shady. You're just like, look at this, like, oh my God, I want, I want, I want some of this. Yeah, you're like, oh my God, these guys are like Goldman Sachs. You're like, you look at it like these guys are gods. Whatever they're doing, I have to. So, so basically, the gig was cold calling for brokerage, you know, opening new accounts, and they were really clever. I mean, not so clever because you know they they were a boiler room, but what they had figured out was that by creating artificial scarcity. Amongst the cold callers, they could make us work like animals. So I think there were – I think this is the number. 75 desks and 100 broker trainees is what they called the, the cold callers. So every morning, we were lined up. And I was taking the train in from Long Island. God knows what time train. Every morning, we were lined up at like 7.30 outside this office. And 25 people got sent home. Every it's day. Like the ultimate gamification, right? We're going to take the crappiest job ever and we're going to make it feel scarce where if you don't show up early, you can't you don't get to do it and now all of a sudden everybody wants to opt in and try for it. Right. Well, so 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 we're lined up and then 20 25 people get sent home. If you got sent home 3 times, you were done. So it was oh, I mean, so sick. eventually like you're coming in at six just to camp out to make sure you don't get your boot on the third one. You have no idea. So so now I get assigned to this guy. My dad, you know, my dad plays at a country club and this is his friend, his friend's son. So uh, this is guy, Steve. Nice guy. I'm like, so what, what did you do before this? I was a bouncer. So that should have been like my first 
<laughs> that should have been my first like red flag. But I, you know, I was I was an idiot. All right, so and, and this business pays a lot better than bouncing, so it's all good. Oh, forget it. I mean, these guys were like these guys were like going to Puerto Rico for like a weekend every week. It was crazy. So, long story short, I start cold calling, and it turns out I'm really good at it. Here's what's interesting: there were guys who were like 30, also as trainees lined up every morning to get one of these desks. And they were like resented me because they're like, you're going back to school in the fall. What the hell do you need to be here taking up a, a spot for? We're trying to do this for a living. Yeah, man. You're, you're the person that knocks some poor 25th into being third out. Right, right. I'm like an intern and I'm taking up a spot that's somebody who's trying to do this for, for a career. Now, let me give you some context, though, for why it's not that weird. First of all. Every Wall Street firm was running based on cold calling at that time. In fact, Lehman Brothers invented cold calling. There's a guy named Marty Shafaroff, I think in the Madison Avenue office of Lehman. They were on Water Street. They were on Madison. He invented it. Wrote a book called Telephone Selling in the 90s. It was entirely legitimate to be a cold calling stockbroker. There were very few pure investment advisors at the time. And, and frankly, the, this 90, 96, 97, think about what's going on. Netscape comes public, Snapple, Boston Chicken, Callaway Golf. These are hot IPOs. And if you're cold calling people and you say, say to them, look, I'm going to have access to Callaway Golf, you know, and if we open an account, you might get a chance at, so this is what we were taught to do. And, and it came really easy to me because, I was excited about the markets and I was learning about investing for the first time. So I, I did really well, but you know, I, I kind of realized, all right, this is not this is not what I'm my, my immediate future. Anyway, long story short, I went back to another brokerage when I was done with school and the rest is history and I ended up spending like the better part of ten or eleven years as like a cold calling retail stockbroker, trying my best to pick good stocks and, and build portfolios, but it was a total treadmill. And I didn't realize it until 2008. So I tell people like that crisis year was probably the best thing that ever happened because it forced me to look at what I was doing and to realize it was not the, the best way forward. So can I ask like what 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 firm were you doing your you know Wall Street cold calling thing for a decade there? A few. Most of them got acquired. Like I was at a firm called Lou Lieberbaum, which got bought by Fonstock, which then got bought by Oppenheimer. So these were all like, you know what they were? They were like regional firms. They were never going to make it into the big leagues. They had like, you know, three or four guys that were quote unquote big producers. And you look back at them now and you say these, they were all pikers. But at the, you know, when you're a kid, you think they're like you think they're gods, and you like if they said to you you should buy Pfizer right now, you would, you would like listen. You would like call your family members and be like, yeah, this guy Tony says buy Pfizer. Like so, you really don't know anything when you first start in the business. And I think I got caught up in that. And you know, I, my my parents kind of look. I, I've come to peace. I've come to terms with it. But I feel like my parents should have done more to to like look at what I was doing with myself and and my career and. Maybe give me advice. You know, you work for your dad's friend. Your dad just assumes everything's fine. So that's kind of how I got into the business. So I, I tell people I came in the back door. Like my whole career would have been very different if I had started at Merrill Lynch in their training program, you know, on Great Neck, Long Island and like worked my way up onto a team. I don't, maybe I'd be happier. Maybe I wouldn't. I don't know. But it definitely would have been different. 
I mean, even as much as we you know, give a hard time to some of the wirehouses from some parts of the industry for you know their sales culture and and the roots of some of it, you were at like the the like the seedier parts of the sales industry that was like a layer below that. Is kind of what it sounds like. Yeah, it was worse because like at least if you if you were making five hundred dials a day at Dean Witter in the nineties, right, and you stayed in the business. Like you probably made it. You probably did really well. These guys were like making 500 phone calls a day and going nowhere. You know, like the owner of the firm did really well. So it was like dumber than dumb. Like it's it's hard to like it's hard to look back now and say what the hell were you doing? Blah blah blah. Because at the time, it just it seemed like the thing to do. And by the way, I came from a town on Long Island that there was something in the water. Everyone was a broker. Like like everyone was driving a Porsche with a license plate that said buy, sell. It was just like a very – it was like the thing to do in the late 90s. And then and then like the career – the profession kind of went away after the dot-com thing blew up, but nobody told me. So I spent another you know eight or nine years – I, I, I kept going and all, the, all these other guys ended up as mortgage brokers, which they had their own new boiler rooms and I kept going. Like what changed in 08? I mean I get it like – the world changed and the financial markets almost collapsed in 08. But I mean, how did that, how did that come down for you? So I was like at a regional firm and they had like, you know, they tried, they had analysts and they were picking stocks and the brokers would sell the stock picks. And like, I just remember we would have these meetings where the analysts would come out and say, okay, guys. And by the way, the market's dropping like 500 points a day, the Dow. And they would come out and they'd say, all right, guys, here's the deal. This batch of stocks is probably going to get killed much less than the rest of the market. So this is what we're going to pitch now. So this is what we're selling today. Yeah, and I was we're just selling defensives. You'll lose less money. And then the other thing is, you're you know, I was a hundred percent commission based, other than like C shares on mutual funds. I was I was transactional. So you kind of get into this, th- and I'm married. I have like a one year old, and it's just like, all right, guys, here's the deal: if you are not doing business, you're not getting paid. You know, if you're not doing transactions and I was kind of coming to this realization that, you know, maybe right now the best thing on earth I could do for my clients is not be pitching them new closed end fund IPOs or not, you know, trading stocks. One thing you cannot do. Well, you start. I mean, you're you're transactional, right? Like the one thing you cannot do is stop on the treadmill. Well, I stopped because I have this up thing called the conscience. (laughs) It ruins fun gigs. I, listen, I probably went like six months without taking home a paycheck. And, you know, my wife is my wife is like, Josh, you're a smart guy. It's why I married you. How could you think that that it's smart to be in a business where if you don't do the wrong thing, you can't you can't make money? Because I was saying to her, listen, I could do trades and drop tickets and all this stuff. But the world feels like it's coming to an end. And I don't want my clients to take more risk than they're already taking. And she's like, well, if you're in a business where you starve by doing the right thing, then you're in the wrong business. And, you know, it took somebody from the outside saying that to me because I would, uh, you know, I would never have just said enough. You know, I, I was just like stuck to this idea that, no, I can do this the right way. No, I can do this the right way. My opinion now, you know, I'm a scourge of the brokerage industry. My opinion now is that it's completely antithetical to doing a good job for your clients and it just does not work, cannot work. I don't care who's doing it. Who's the practitioner? How how strong of a of a conscience they have? It does not work. But I wasn't there yet, so I got there, and I at the same time I started reading a couple of investment blogs. I was reading Eddie Elfenbein, 
Crossing Wall Street. I was reading Barry Ritholtz, The Big Picture, reading Jeff Miller. I was like, I was, I was like, if I have analysts in front of me saying, all right, these stocks will get killed the least, so go sell that. That doesn't. That's not sat. That's not a intellectually satisfying. There's a, like I'm looking for more. So I start reading blogs, and the blogs are telling the truth about the interrelationship between housing and the stock market, or why you can't have nationally home prices go up sixfold but incomes be flat. Like how that that's just completely impossible. So by reading Barry, I think. I started saving my clients from the unfolding crisis. I started taking people to cash or allocating people to bonds or doing things that I would never have done if not for like branching out in terms of where I was getting information from. And when the the crisis had passed, I I resolved that I was going to take my clients out of brokerage, move over to advisory, and I was going to do the business the right way, even though... You know, I was basically starting from scratch as an IA. It was the only way that I could go forward. So it was like the best thing that ever happened to me because it forced a clean slate on me. And I'm going to presume like you're, you're the firm you were at, there was no IA option like, hey, sure, yeah, if you don't want to sell the stuff, here's an investment option. You had to make a change. Or did you just decide I don't want to be there anymore? It's a hardcore broker dealer. Like, oh, you want to get paid on a trail? Okay, buy B and C shares. Like they – they like they because they were stuck in the '90s, the you know, and and that's like a, there were a lot of firms like that, and mo- they're mostly gone in the last you know we're talking about like eight or nine years ago, by the way. But so they're mostly gone. But that in New York, on Long Island, uh, Westchester, New Jersey, there were a ton of firms like that. So I knew that that was a dead end finally, and and I was really lucky because. Barry had become like a hero to me. He was dead right on everything he had been saying from late 06 on. And then I got to meet him through the, the blogging. And so my first gig as an investment advisor was I got to work with my hero. And not a lot of people are able to say that. So so it was really like a, a lot of bad stuff I went through, a lot of darkness and being broke and, and on principle refusing to make money, et cetera. But, but on the other side of that, I, I kind of feel like the, the universe rewarded me to some extent. So I'm curious how that went. Like you met Barry and like, dude, I got to get out of where I am. Can I come work for you? Like did you just – you were good at cold calling and pitching and you just pitched him? I, no, I was on my way to LPL. I had an offer from LPL. They were setting up something in New York. It's weird. LPL at the time really didn't have a presence in Manhattan, but they were they wanted one. So I met the recruiter. I, look, I had a clean license. I, I was very honest with them. I said, look, I, I, you know, I have a few million in assets. I'm mostly transactional, but I'm going to build an NIA practice, and I was going to go. You know, They were offering me some money or whatever, so I was going to go, and then – but I, I I started the reformed broker and the blog was like getting some renown like people were reading it so through that I met Howard Lindzen who's the blog father the founder of StockTwits for your, for your listeners that Howard's like a VC in in fintech and I met him and he said dude I don't know what your story is you write really good stuff you should come out to my conference in Coronado Island so I get there. This is like 2010. This is just as I'm about to walk away from the brokerage world and I'm about to go to LPL. How it says, you got to come out here. It's going to be all financial bloggers and financial tech people and it's great networking. So I have like no money at the time. And I say to my wife, I need a plane ticket to San Diego. 
And and I need to stay at the Dell, by the way, the Dell Coronado, which is like which is like five five hundred a night, and I need a thousand dollar airfare and whatever. And she's like, "Are you out of your mind? Like, we have a baby, we have a house with, with a mortgage. Are you?" But ultimately, she's like, "All right, if you if you really feel like this is the move, then then do what you got to do." So I get on the I get on the flight, I get out there, and I get to the pool, and it's like overcast, which is weird for San Diego. I guess in the morning it's it's cloudy, and so. The people that are there for the conference are like clustered outside by the pool, but they're wearing sweatshirts. So I meet for the first time. I see him from across. I see Barry Ritholtz. And for me, that's like going to Disney World and seeing Mickey Mouse. Like Barry is my hero. I had never met him, but I'd been reading his blog for three or four years. So I see him and he's like in a, in a chaise lounge eating a bowl of matzo ball soup. And I said, <laughs> so look at this, look at this fat schlub from Long Island, Jewish guy sitting on a, on a chaise lounge eating matzo ball soup. That's me. You know, like we were like almost soulmates. So I plopped down next to him and ordered chicken fingers or whatever. And I think within 15 minutes, we just hit it off like to the extent where he's like, so what are you, what are you doing career wise? Because we're building an investment advisory firm at the firm that I'm at, which was mostly a research shop. He's like, and we need guys like you. We need sales guys. We need advisors. It was like a done deal. And then I got back to New York. I had like three voicemails from Barry. What are you doing? Get over here. What are you, you know? So, so like the rest is history. That trip changed my life. And I almost didn't go because I, I honestly, I, I didn't have the wherewithal to put 1500 bucks on my credit card. That's the, the shape that I was in at that time. I think it makes an interesting point that. You know, so many people. I mean, we've talked about this with other guests in the podcast before as well. You know, I mean, there are times when like opportunity comes and knocks on your door, and it doesn't always make it easy. And you know, the easiest response sometimes is like, "Hey, man, yeah, thanks for the invitation, but you know, where things are a little tight right now, I, I, I just, I don't want to come out of pocket for fifteen hundred bucks for a conference. I mean, who knows whether you can get anything out of that conference? I've been to conferences, I don't get anything out of them sometimes." Right. And like to say, you know, no, no, dude, like Howard Lindzen came to me personally and said, come to my conference. Like you figure it out. Like when, when people hand you an opportunity sometimes, like, you know, you bite the bullet and do what you got to do and figure it out. You know, there's something to be said for like just taking that one, that one risk after all, you know, after doing it the old way and not taking risk and, and just trying to get by. And then like that one risk presents itself and you have no idea what the ratio of risk to reward potential is. But you just say, if I don't do this, I'm uh, who knows what's going to happen. It was kind of something like that. And, you know, look, I think I think it's been just as important for Barry as it has been for me, because Barry at that time was really like, what am I going to do? You know, Barry was the guy who was screaming about the housing bubble from 05 on. And he was really, really right. And then on on the way down, you know, Dow's at, at 7,800 or something. And it's on its way ultimately to 6,500 or whatever the, the final low was. And he's the guy in the New York Times two days before. He says, look, I kept you out so far. Spot me a thousand points if I'm wrong, but I would be buying them here. And, and so he's got like that renown and he's got Ben Bailout Nation comes out. Bailout Nation's a New York Times bestseller. It's like the definitive guide to to what went wrong and 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 what happened but he doesn't really know 
what he wants to do. You know, he's, he's a research guy. He's not client facing. He's not an investment advisor. So I think for both of us, it was a really great uh, serendipitous thing that we met at that time and, and decided to, to work together. You know, his strengths, my strengths, and let, you know, the, the, the one thing that we both really had in common that mattered was that we were both not afraid to say what we thought, me because I had nothing to lose, and him because that's just his personality. And so we said, you know what, we're going to say what we think, and we're going to see if there are people that want that kind of unvarnished truth from, from an investment advisor. And, and it turned out there were a lot of them. So at that point, like you joined his firm, you bought into his firm, like he made you a partner, you were an employee. I mean, what did it look like when you when you decided to go work with him? No, I just, I, I walked in, I moved my license over and brought my client. That was the hardest thing was, so I had like a hundred something brokerage accounts that I was bringing with me. And a lot of them were small, but they were people that I cared about. You know, they, they were people that, that stuck with me through the crisis, through thick and thin. So, you know, it's a $30,000 account. You know, the, the firm's minimum is, is a million bucks. I don't care. I got to bring this, I got to bring this guy with me because he listened to me through the crisis. He stayed with me. So I, you know, I brought over a hundred something accounts. It was a ton of paperwork for not a lot of financial payoff, but a really big spiritual payoff because I, learned at you know through that process to tell these people hey look here's what's going to happen i was your broker on monday on tuesday i'm going to be your advisor what that means is that you still have me but the difference is i'm going to cost you about a tenth of what i used to and i'm actually going to have worthwhile advice to give you not just here's the product i want to sell you this week so everyone came that was easy and then just learning from Barry about his investment philosophy and and you know, look, I, I had read a, a ton of books at that point, but they were so scat. You know, you read uh, Market Wizards by Schwager, and then you read Peter Lynch, and then you read Jack Bogle. You got three completely different. So I read Nick Murray was the book that made, probably changed more about my investment philosophy than anything else. Was that Simple Wealth Inevitable? That's the book I give to when, like when kids are like, when I go speak in an event and kids are like, you know, what should I do? What should I, just read this. Don't do anything else until you read this. Like right, that's so, the, so if someone gives you a choice, a successful telephone selling in the 90s or a Simple Wealth Inevitable, <laughs> go, go, with, go with the second one. <sighs> so, 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 so I just say like, read, just read this book and if it has even a tenth of the impact on you as it had on me, you're going to be on the right track. Like that's that's how I think about that book. But then just like look, Barry. So people don't understand this about Barry, or very few people know this about Barry. I should say he started his blogging career or whatever in 1998 on what was the site called? Uh, GeoCities. Yeah. GeoCities. So you would spend the first hour writing the blog post. It wasn't even called a blog, by the way, at that time. That term came later. You would spend an hour writing something, and then you'd spend an hour coding it just to get it up. Yeah, raw, raw, raw code, like all of the, okay, I want italics, so bracket, I, close bracket, and then bracket, slash, I, close bracket. So we're on, we're on WordPress, like living the, the life of Riley. He was coding posts about investing. Nobody was doing that. So And then he got the gig with uh, Kramer at thestreet.com, but like he was – in 1998, he was building a blog before there was even WordPress or TypePad or whatever. And people people forget that. And then he was doing it daily, which was really unique. And then he was doing it multiple times a day, which almost nobody would think to do. And he was talking about cognitive 
foibles and behavioral investing, this was like unheard of. Everything written on the web up until, let's say, 2005 about investing was like, here are five stocks for your Christmas uh, stocking stuffer. Like it was shit like that. It was like, you know, Altature stuff, like Pirate Capital just filed the 13D on this company. Here are six other companies that also are similar. Like that was what the financial web was before Barry. And Barry was out there talking about the availability bias, the gambler's fallacy, talking about the different heuristics and anchoring and all these things. So like that was mind-blowing for me to go back and look at how many things he was talking about then that now are like daily conversation. Most advisors weren't, you know, Jason Zweig wrote Your Brain and Your Money or Your Money and Your Brain, which was like foundational for advisors and behavioral investing. But Barry's stuff even predated that. So I think that that's really was really helpful for me to, to learn all that stuff directly from, from Ritholtz and then put my own spin on it as I, as I learned it, which means just rewrite his blog posts but put F-bombs in it. But, <laughs> but a lot of, look, a lot of what I do, a lot of my blog, a lot of the things I've written over the years is about me trying to get smarter. It's my, my stuff is never like, I know everything. Here's how the world works according to a 32-year-old. Like that was never my shtick. My shtick was always, here's what I'm reading, here's what I think is interesting, here's what I think might be important. And so, you know, can you talk to us a little bit more about how it is that that, that turns into, into business, into, you know, clients that move money, right? Because I, I feel like there's still a perception out there, like, Josh, can you tell me what, what is the tweet that brought in the most assets under management? Cause like, I just, I want to do that. To, I don't want to skip all the other like hundred thousand tweets. Like, just tell me the one that brought the most assets. Cause then I want, I want to do that too. So I can get assets from social media. If only it worked that way. I think a tweet in and of itself is, is never going to be as meaningful as just the persona that you put out there. And it's got to be real. Like people will figure out who you are eventually. The more you the more stuff you do publicly, the more people will see the real you. So you can't become a character. You're, you have to be yourself. And then just the repetition and just the idea that you're out there, you have a take on things. Look, you don't have to be an expert in everything. There are things that I have no business weighing in on and I don't. And then, But then also just like demonstrating a little bit of humanity. Like I'm tweeting about Nick games. It has nothing to do with investing, but it's what I'm into. And it's, and I think it, it's, it's relatable to people. When I go to a great steakhouse and, and I, and I post a picture, a 30 ounce uh, bone in ribeye I just took down on Instagram. Like that's not a, that's not a financial marketing post on Instagram. It's just me being me. And people will follow you if they feel like it's genuine and you're interesting and you're engaged in your business. Like people – and then one day, and then one day, 35-year-old guy realizes, hey, I have close to a million bucks built up. I'm still dealing with my dad's broker at Smith Barney or Morgan Stanley or whatever it is now. I should talk to this guy, Josh. He seems to know what's going on. He seems to be really passionate about investing. So that, that's how it works. And it's, it's so – there isn't any one tweet or one post. I think it's a body of work. And, and by the way, the Twitter stuff is just marketing for the blog. The blog is the most important thing. Like if you're out there doing Facebook posts or tweets and you don't have a blog – you're, I think you're kind of wasting your time. You have to have long-form, well-thought-out, edited, well-presented content. 
And the way to do it is with WordPress or, you know, if you have to, a LinkedIn or Medium. But I think, like, you, you should be using social media to push people to read what you really think. And you cannot express that in 140 characters. It's an interesting point. So, so does that mean, I mean, just practical reality, like, if you're an advisor but you're not actually good at writing, then – this whole blogging thing isn't going to work for you or even the, the like blogging social media, all of it's not going to work for you and you may as well move on to something else. Yeah. I don't think everyone should be doing this. I think you should, I think like you have to love it. You, you, you can't force yourself to do something you don't love. And it's a blog is a beast that must be fed. Nobody wants to read what you said last week. Like it's not like we're writing books that then go on a library and people are taking the book out. Like we're doing content that's very much of the moment. Even though the stuff that I do, that Ben does, that Michael Batnick does, it's timeless. It's still pegged to something that's happening right now. So when Ben does something killer about interest rates versus international stock returns, like that's probably prompted by something that happened either in the media or in the markets that day. So the message is evergreen, but quite frankly, the thing's not going to get read like 36 hours after you did it. So if you're not ready to sign up for something like that, then don't worry about it. Do something else. Do like, you know, do the Rotary Club or do the networking group or do the plate licking, you know, uh, do, do cold calling, do anything, you know, like, like not everyone should be like, all right, I'm a blogger because you, it's a lot, it's a, I hate to say it's a lifestyle, but it's like, it takes over your life a little bit. Like you start everything you read, everything you see, you say, oh, that would be a great, that'd be a great metaphor for this thing I'm trying to explain with PE ratio. Like, you become it. You become – so if you're not ready to really do that and you're like going to write one blog post a month, you don't need a blog. You could just do that on LinkedIn. But don't be like, oh, I wrote this 800-word post. I, I worked all weekend on it. Nobody read it. This, this, this shit doesn't work. Of course it doesn't work because it's like everything. What you put in is, is what you get out of it. So I, I'm really lucky because I started early. I think if I were starting now, it would be really hard to establish a voice – and, and to break through, I started in 08. A lot of blogs started in 08, but think about how many have started since. So does that mean just you have to have some kind of special angle or thing or whatever if you want to break through now? Yeah, and then the problem with having a special angle is like you could get pigeonholed as, oh, that's that, that's that guy. You, you know, the, oh, that's the former Lehman guy, and everything he writes is about how this is just like Lehman. I actually I started my, my site the same month as Zero Hedge. So we were the class of, so we were the class of November two thousand eight. <laughs> there were a lot of others, but I think it's just me, he, him, and I from from that era, and we went in decidedly different directions. I think you'd agree. Yes, a little, <laughs> little bit of a different direction. So, so help me understand how this translates into into results. So, so or maybe you can paint the timeline for me. So you you started with Barian twenty ten. Yeah, but not ser- not seriously until 2011, and then within two years. So then within two, we were practice within a practice. We you know we had somebody somebody else's RIA. So Barry Barry was under someone else's RIA as well. Yeah, and you were under him, and I was basically under him. And we we liked the guys we worked with, no problem. But we just one day we said, if we're ever going to do this ourselves, let's not wait until we build up you know a lot more clients and assets to move. Let's just go for it. We got lucky because people at TD Ameritrade Institutional, which is our main custodian, 
they were really supportive. They really they liked us. You know, we were at all their events and they just they were so great. Like whenever somebody says, "Hey, I'm going to start an RIA from scratch. Who should I custody with?" I just I send them right to TD. TD was incredible for us and they they backed us, not financially, but they were like, "What do you guys need to do this?" So we needed things like you know, we're going to send out a hundred something FedExes with returns. We need labels. We need like, we just didn't have the manpower to do it. We didn't have the, the wherewithal to, and they just were like, whatever you guys need, we'll, we'll help you. If we can't do it for you, we'll tell you who to talk to. So we needed a lawyer. We need like, we, we needed the compliance firm. We needed uh, web archiving because we're, you know, we're emailing, we're doing tweets. Like they were just, they had our backs and it made it possible for myself, Barry, Chris, Michael, and an assistant to launch a firm, you know, the planning took six months, but the actual launch, you know, it's like 24 hours. Yeah, yeah. When, like once you're going, everything moves at once. That's it. And actually, Michael, uh, I don't know if your viewers care or not, but I care. I was there that day. <laughs> you were the first. You were the first visitor at our new firm. You were up in our office, and we were like. Free, I, I don't know if you remember this. We were like hopped up on caffeine, freaking out. Everything, everything was in motion, and we were like peppering you with questions about who we should use as our vendor for this, for that. And you were like, "Oh my god, you guys, you guys are really in the, in the I, thick I, of it." I remember I helped carry a box from the old from the old office to the new office. That was a, I wish I wish I had a awesome timing. I've still got a guy. You know, Barry gave me a signed copy of the book, so I feel like I got my my souvenir for being there that day. Right. So that so that was like that that was like September twenty third. And we didn't know anything like we we know investing, but we don't know running a business. You know, we, we, I read your blog and, you know, I try to keep up with like best practices, articles and investment news and whatever. But you really and you can't know it until you do it. You really have to do it to know how little, you know, and to force your like OSHA rule, like New, like New York State labor laws. Like, I don't, I don't know any of this stuff. So we really had probably a two year massive learning curve and i i mean like setting up shit like payroll provider and and setting up our own 401k and all that stuff and you know there are platform firms you know you could go to Cheryl Penny at, at Dynasty and you don't have to do any of that you could you're just you're in business yeah, Dynasty high tower so i'm glad we did it i'm glad we did it our way and by the way in doing it our way it forced us to build up infrastructure both in terms of personnel and software and, and our tech stack. And we built it custom for us and we made some mistakes and made some changes. But I'm glad we didn't shortcut that. I'm glad we built our own because now we have this platform that we can scale up from and, and we learned it all ourselves. Uh, you know, it really forced us to evaluate all the vendors, all how, you know, how the software works together, how a choice that we make one year could still be affecting us three years later. Like we, we went through all of that stuff and I think we got really, really smart about it. But, you know, every month something new comes up that we could never have pictured. So we're, we're always on our toes. So when you made that switch, like what how how big was the firm or the asset base when you switched over? Like how how large were you that the math made sense on this? Or maybe the math didn't make sense. It's funny. We were like ninety million and I swear to God, this is a true story. Chris'll Chris will tell you this sometime more in depth. The morning before we were gonna split, we lost our biggest client. We lost the eight million dollar account on, on a ninety million dollar practice. And we because didn't, he basically said, like, I don't, I don't want to go with you guys because you're changing, or he didn't even know. No, he loved us. It's so much worse than that. And I have this, like, 
this pit of vitriol inside of me that'll never go away as a result of things like this. This was a guy that I don't want to be too specific. He was a tech entrepreneur on the East Coast, really great guy. He sold his business. The investment banker was Goldman Sachs or JP Morgan. And so now he had all this liquid cash and not only did he want to invest, we had we had his money, all his money to invest, but he wanted to play. So he was like, you know, I got a summer home and I'm building a second summer home. And at the end of the summer, I'm going to decide which one I want to keep like like that. So in order to do that stuff and look, he did well, but he wasn't like Larry Ellison. He thought he was Larry Ellison. So in order to do that stuff, he needed to borrow money. So. We, you know, this is something weird. TD Ameritrade does not have their act together, or they didn't at the time, on lending client, you know, asset back loans. And I'm not a fan of asset back lending anyway, but like there are situations where the client just needs it. And given where interest rates are, it's better. It's better than another option. So fine. We, we couldn't really do it for him. We were talking to like third party vendors and it was just very messy and we had no idea what we were talking about. We were trying to find ways to make it work and it just – it couldn't work and like that's what it came down – like push came, came to shove and he, and he basically said, I hate doing this to you guys. I know you're about to launch the firm tomorrow. I filled out all the paperwork already but – there's a piece of property on the water. I can't pass it up. I've been looking at it for two years, and the only way I could do it is a loan, and I have to move my account in order to get the loan because it's got to be against my, my portfolio. It's either that or liquidating my portfolio. So you lost it because he had to move the $8 million to do a portfolio asset loan. So Chris is on the phone with him, and he's like, all right, no problem. All right, sounds great. Listen, we'll talk to you in a, in a few months when, you know, when your situation changes. All right, no problem. No worries. All right. All right. Love you. Bye. Gets off the phone. He's like, oh, f- you have no idea, Josh. I go, I go what? Who, who, who was that? And he told me, and it's like our, our biggest account. I'm like, oh, that's great because we're walking out the door tomorrow <laughs> to, to start. And we, and we signed, a, we already signed our, our sublease for our, our space. We, we like cut checks to, uh, like tech people to set up. A, you know, we did like Apple thing where, where we're like leasing computers. It was like, it was just like the worst news you could possibly get when you're about to launch a business. But we fought through it. I think I think it like it really didn't kill us financially as much as it killed us like emotionally, like our momentum. Because because like my my whole shtick is like, oh, what's gonna happen next? What else, what you know, what else gonna go wrong? I, I went from being really excited to like, oh, we're dead. So so we and we weren't dead, we were fine. And by the way, when we launched the firm, we had like we had like four hundred inquiries, like it just exploded. And a lot of people when they inquired after we announced the launch of the firm, we're like, I didn't know what you guys did for a living. I was reading your blogs. I didn't know you guys were advisors. Like like you mentioning that you're launching a firm. So it wasn't actually like they didn't just come to you like, oh, you know, we didn't want you at the old firm. But now that you have your own RIA, we want you. It's just they were so into the content, they kind of forgot what you did or figuring out what you did. And now you told them. Yeah, like Barry's like global macro strategist or something. I don't, I didn't know that you guys could could take my my three million dollar you know IRA. Like so so that was so that made up for it. And we didn't. By the way, we did not expect that to happen. We actually we were shocked by how few of our readership even understood that we were financial advisors. You know, people don't read everything you write. How you're doing the business now? We're trying to drive assets because I mean, I, I like people apparently figured out if. Three and a half years ago, you broke away 
with you know ninety million minus ten percent of it for the client that left, and three and a half years you're you're closing in on half a billion dollars under management. Like that's a that's a lot of money moving yeah. around. Well, so here's what's cool. So we we brought on a second custodian. So we're Schwab and, and TD. And we brought in someone who's very good at 401k. We brought in CFPs who can talk to, you know, households, $20 million households. We could sit down with these people and be competitive with anyone. Our portfolio chops have gotten better and better. Our performance reporting, like everything, like the whole thing is like it keeps getting better. It, where it started to now it's almost unrecognizable. Now, the people who came with us originally, they see that improvement. They see us getting better every month, putting in more tools, putting in more options, bringing on new vendors to give them different ways of you know, bringing on Money Guide Pro, bringing on Orion, going to Salesforce. Like They see us doing this stuff and investing every month to try to get better. And so the, the people that came with us and stuck with us, they've made referrals. And I think we've been pretty good at just like doing what we say we're going to do, which uh, sounds so obvious. Like, doesn't everyone do that? No, not everyone says what they're going to do to the client and then actually does it. So I think we've gotten really good at that. So churn is, is pretty low. And then, you know, just being very realistic with people up front and it costs us business. To be honest, like what, like someone will come in and say, all right, here's the deal. I have eight million bucks and I want to try you out with a million before I give you the, the eight million over six months. And we'd just say, no, thanks. You know, it's hard to do that when you have no money under management, but it's the absolute right thing to do because we're not the asset manager. We're the financial planner. And it's bigger. That it's a bigger responsibility. We're not here to run a slug of someone's money and compete against four other advisors. So, um, you know, saying no to that has actually come back to us in a big way because now we get the eight million dollar account, and uh, and we earn it. You know, and 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 so like little things like that that you would never think are possible when you're just starting out. All of a sudden, it becomes it becomes the standard. And and I think that that. Uh, and, and when I say standard, like standardizing our process, which again, I give a lot of the credit to Chris, has been so key for us. Uh, we would not have been able to add institutional, uh, which is what we brought Ben over to do and all these other things. We couldn't do it if we didn't have a machine. And I think we really have a great machine. And you don't worry that you know, clients won't feel like they're getting their customized, individualized, personalized financial advice if you're, if you're systematizing so much around the business? So we're systematizing the things that you almost – you don't even see them if you're a client. We're systematizing things like based around how do we get you know, reporting out to people or how, to, or how do we handle when it comes time to do uh, RMDs, like that kind of thing. A client appreciates that it's done efficiently. They don't know because it's irrelevant to them. It's something that has to get done. They don't need to know what piece of software we're using to synchronize or how we're rebalancing accounts whether we're using iRebal from TD or we're switching over to Orion, the, to the client, that's not relevant to us. That saves us hours, if not days, of manpower each each month, each quarter. So we're so I think it's the guy. What's the guy from Pershing's name who runs the RIA business? Mark Tversian. So, so I heard him give a talk somewhere. You were probably there too. And like the gist of what he was saying was standardize the process, personalize the advice. So every one of my households has a highly personalized financial plan and a one-on-one -on -one relationship with an advisor here. There's no call center. Like if you come here as a client of my firm 
and you end up with the CFP that onboards you, that's your advisor for hopefully for life. That's a very personalized thing. But the stuff that we're standardizing, that's the who gives a damn stuff that frankly should be standardized. It should be done right and the same way every time. I went to the Hershey Museum with my family last summer and my favorite part of it is the funnel cake. But my second favorite part is there's this thing about like how how many times Milton Hershey failed and by the way, he was trying to do car- he was trying to do caramel. Chocolate was not even on his radar. But then he figured out something about chocolate. Everywhere he went, it tasted different, and he traced that to the fact that chocolate was coming from the Middle East, from South America, from the South U.S., all over the place, and different seasons, different chocolate from you know different bean varieties, and so he like took. All of the different varieties of chocolate beans, he stored them all year. He made a blend that was the same every single time, and that's why Hershey is Hershey. So he standardized the thing that because he standardized it. Well, if you if you, so if you had a Hershey bar in Philadelphia, and then six months later you had one in Los Angeles, you had the same exact product. There was no difference. That's that sounds like oh it's obvious now but we're talking about turn of the century turn of the last century America that was that very was, that far was from revolutionary standard. yeah it was revolutionary so you know the stuff that we're that we're using technology for and I think we're we're you know we're we're very tech centric and you know we rely on these tools but that stuff is invisible to the clients but it, it's enabling us to be five hundred million and I hope I don't have to add a ton of bodies for us to be a billion. I don't think I do, quite frankly. And so as you project it from here, I mean, how much business comes in at this point from all the blogging and social media stuff? I mean, is is that the driver now? Is it mostly client referrals? I mean, I'm still looking back at this, just, you know, adding $400 million over three years and, and, you know, 10 to 30 prospect inquiries a week. I mean, those are big numbers for most advisory firms. That's a lot of growth and activity. Is, Is that still just powered by the blogging the social media stuff? I don't think that we're any better or worse than the average firm at referrals. I think we're okay, but we're only three years old. So referrals are not going to be a huge part of the mix yet. We just frankly haven't been here long enough. So, but I mean, we, you know, we get our our share, but I, I think like, so something really cool is happening. So we have readers now that have been, I'm doing this, I'm writing the blog. I'm in my ninth year. Can you believe that? Barry is – I don't even want to get into how, you know, how – he's almost 20 years writing and, and speaking publicly. And it's not just the blogging. We're all over the country. We're doing – you know, we're speaking at conferences. We're getting quoted in local newspapers. So that – there's not an immediate payoff. Like I write something good today and, and five people inquire about giving me their money. But because that, that, it doesn't really work that way. You know how it works? Somebody has been reading you on and off getting your stuff in their inbox every night for like five years. And then all of a sudden, their dad dies and they inherit the res- not just the money, but the responsibility to get it managed for their whole family. We have like younger, I think younger than average inquiries coming in. And these are people that have been with us, reading us forever. And I think b- because there's been that relationship that's been built and we never ask anyone for anything we're not selling a trading service. We're not, we don't do premium newsletters. We don't ask our readers for anything other than 
if they want to read something interesting about the subject to give us a chance. So we've built that relationship up with millions of people at this point, and most of them will never reach out to us. But whatever the percentage is, and I have you know a, a web team that analyzes this stuff. I'm not so sold on this whole big data thing, but that's another conversation. But whatever the percentage is, the people come and say, hey, I've been, re- I've been reading you for four years. I've been reading you for seven years. I like what you have to say. I'm ready to make a change. I'm using an advisor I, I no longer want to use or I've been doing it myself and now I'm going to retire and, uh, and I'm scared of where bond yields are and you know whatever the thing is. But that's that just takes time. So the way to think about that is like a telecom company that's laid uh, millions of miles of fiber and there was no use for it. And then all of a sudden YouTube came along and just lit that fiber and then there was, then there was not enough, right? Like, like it went from being a write-off to, oh my God, we need to double it. Or the investments that like Amazon has made over the years. And people are like, you keep throwing money at fulfillment centers. Why don't you turn a profit? And then like all of a sudden he's like, here's why. This is what – so I don't know. I, I've written like 5,000 blog posts. Barry's written 20. Ben's writing every day. I don't know which is going to be the one that pulls the trigger, but I think I'm building a relationship with people that are reading me. I think I'm earning their trust. I think they're they're seeing that I'm a good person who works his ass off at getting this stuff right, and, and that's what's really going on right now. Well, and, and that's the thing that's always struck me as well. We get a lot of readership on Nerds Eye View, nominally for advisors, but God bless Google. You know, consumers find their way there as well. And since I write a lot of stuff on tax and retirement planning in particular, I get a lot of prospective retirees that are are kind of following the blog. And you know, it's the same thing. I mean, we drive business, we drive new client business off the blog, but it's never you know this. Oh my god! I just I read this one article and like a flash of light came down from God and told me that this is the advisor for the rest of my life. Yeah, if I mean, that's the, what you're counting on. If that's what you're counting on, it's not going to work that way. I, so, I mean, it's it's always the same inquiry. I mean, it's a template. It's always the same inquiry. Like, found you months ago or years ago. Been reading your stuff for a long time. Now I have a problem. Right, like I'm getting ready to retire, or my you know, I want to leave my old advisor, or something bad happened. Like now I've got to change my, a moment in my life. I've been following you for a long time. I like you and trust your stuff. Can you help me? Can we meet? And how awesome is that? And think about think about like the next generation, the way that they're going to select people to work with. They don't care about brands. They don't accept arguments from authority. Like my our parents generation it was like they, they would meet with somebody, the guy would be like, well, I'm at, I'm at Merrill Lynch and we've been doing this for 80 years. I think we know what we're talking about. And like my dad would be like, wow, Merrill Lynch. Like think somebody who's like 30 years old, they don't give a shit about Merrill. It has no meaning to them at all. What they care about is authenticity. So like somebody that puts themselves out there and says what they think and is being straight with them, that counts so much more than, oh, look at this full page ad in Barron's. Who cares? Who cares? So like I think like I think like that's going to be even more important in the next five to ten years than it's been in the last five to ten years. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a generational thing. So for advisors who By are, the way, wait, wait. I got a question for you. I heard you're like psychotic about your Google SEO rank to the point where like if somebody quotes you, I don't know if it's true, you like hunt them down and like cease and desist using my text on your, your site. Is oh my that God, true? No. No, That's not, not at all. No, if people quote stuff we wrote, I mean, I, I, live for, I live for blogging like everybody does. You know, you're, you're, 
your blog that doesn't count until people are are quoting it and citing it. I mean, I've had once I, I've had one or two instances of someone that was like literally copy and pasted the entire five thousand word article and put it on their site. <laughs> and you went at them though, right? I, yeah, I have sent one or two. <laughs> I've sent one or two emails for that. I'm like. I mean, we've got a thing on our, our site. Like, you feel free to, to quote a couple of paragraphs and just, you know, include attribution back to where you found it. That's fine. Get it out there. But, like, if you're literally going to steal a 5,000-word article and not even note the source that it came from, which has happened more than once, like, yeah, you're going to get an email from me because that's stealing. And- I, had a, I had a guy who was a columnist for Forbes. He would literally take my – he was. Uh, everyone was columnist. For, there was. There was like a three-year stretch from 2009 to 2012 yes. where like everyone yeah, had a Forbes column. Yep. Right. So what a factory that was. Replicating HuffPo. Yep. Yeah, so I, so I, right. So I had a guy like taking my blog posts and just putting his own byline on them and publishing it Forbes. Wow. So I, I went there. I I went to Forbes. It's like in the 20s in Manhattan. I sh- like I showed up and talked to a reporter there that I knew from Twitter. <laughs> and they were like, "Oh, we have nothing to do with that." There's like this content farm somewhere uh, for. <laughs> so anyway, so I- yeah, I, you know, if you steal content wholesale and don't and don't include attribution, that's an issue. But I, yeah, I'm a I'm a I'm a blogger that lives like every other blogger. I just want my work to get quoted and referenced and linked to. And yeah, that's right. That's right. So I'm curious though for you new advisors or maybe just even advisors that have been doing this for a while, but are, are like new to social media and blogging this whole thing. Do you have tips for them about how to do it or, or like how to how to get going if you were starting from here today and, you know, not having the benefit of having gotten going eight or nine years ago when the space was less crowded? Yeah, you should still do it because like, like what we just discussed, it's going to become, I think, like mandatory that your firm has a personality and a face to it. Like I don't, I don't think brands are, are going to matter. I, I really don't. And I think – like even Betterment gets this. They put John front and center. The commercials for Betterment is like a camera one inch away from John's face. I, I wonder if they can get the camera – if they if he could swallow the camera like a colonoscopy. It's just like it's it's you you, you and John up close and personal on those commercials. Jesus. Back up, back up an inch, John. Uh, but but I, like everyone gets like that that's going to be the thing. It's authenticity. It's trust. And by the way well, – yeah, like to Betterman's credit, you know they A/B tested that with John at probably every different possible distance from the camera in, in three inch increments. So if if that's the one they keep running, like they tested it, it worked apparently. No, no, no. They used uh, they used Dan Egan and John and and John's cuter. <laughs> <laughs> Much love to Dan when he listens to this episode. Love you, Dan. So no, but so like, what was I going to say? Oh, like even in social media, like nobody follows brands. Like like people follow the Kardashians in the millions. They're not following like Macy's. Like nobody cares about the brand. It's always about the person, the personality, which is why we we've we've built out this network of of people and faces. And they have Instagram accounts and they have Facebook accounts. And it's up to you what level of of how personal do you want to get with me, with Michael, with Barry. And most people not so personal. Most people just want the blog content. But I think like just showing different sides of yourself is going to be important. But so And do you have to do that on your own site? Do you do that on LinkedIn or Medium? Like should they do it on their business site? Because I know like you – you guys are all separate, right? You, Barry's got Withholds.com and you got ReformBroker.com and, and, uh, and Withholds Wealth Management is a separate firm. Like, is that what you advocate for everybody? 
I well, it depends on how far you're going to take it. But I think at a minimum, you should have a WordPress dot com, a dot com of your own, and use WordPress as the architecture, which costs zero dollars. You can get a domain for thirteen bucks, and you could be up on WordPress in an hour, half an hour. And then you know, if if you're going to commit to it, then you hire a designer. You get a custom banner built. Maybe you get some customization on the blog, like features that you want, like maybe. You know, a, a lot of things are already there, but whatever. Like, if you're gonna if you're gonna really do it, then just invest a couple of bucks and build a WordPress blog and connect it to your corporate site and set up your web archiving for compliance so that it picks up all of your posts. Take turn off comments because if you start if you allow comments and you start responding to comments, that's like a whole other thing to archive. Just get rid of it and then think about your Facebook. And by the way, not your personal Facebook. You should have a business Facebook. But think about your Facebook, your LinkedIn, and your Twitter as being spokes and the blog being the hub. And use those spokes, use your social networks to drive traffic to the blog. And do not expect results in the first 90 days. In fact, the best thing that can happen to you is nobody reads it in the first 90 days because you're going to suck. And you're going to get – and you're going to be so much better, so much better as a writer on day 90 than you were on day one because it takes time to find your voice and, and to find your footing and to realize what's my typical length post. How many topics should I try to tackle in one week? All these things, there is no answer. You're going to find it for yourself just through trying and so you should not be looking at your traffic. The worst thing is that people will find it. Get your voice. Get some practice. And, get it yeah, out there. Yeah. And then once it's good, then you send it to somebody like me and you say – and this happens every week. Hey, dude. I'm an RIA in Minnesota. You know, uh, I just started blogging a few months ago and most of what I wrote, I can't even look at it. But I did this thing that I think is really interesting. It's about the VIX and – or what, you know, whatever it is like – you share it with somebody like me or somebody like somebody like Morgan Housel or somebody like Ben and if it's good we're going to make sure people see it and then you're then you're off and running but like don't like start a blog on Monday and DM me on Tuesday yo did you read that thing dude dude you haven't you, you haven't gotten to where you want to be yet trust me don't send me a link yet so like that's one thing but yeah the blog has to be the center and everything else should just be serving to, and don't write on your corporate site nobody wants to read it you have to have something that's about you about your personality so you'd advocate separating if, if you I, I would i mean the firm still got to oversee it but you make make it your own thing yeah, and all your disclosures have to be there. You have to have terms and conditions. You have to be very explicit that it's not investment advice, that you're not telling people that you've never met what to buy and sell. You know, you have to do all that. And then like the name of the blog. So this is guy Roger Wolner. Brilliant idea. He named his blog the Chicago Financial Planner. <laughs> Guess what happens when you Google financial planner in Chicago? <laughs> right. And he was early. But so like he's highly relevant for for searches of people that need a financial planner in Chicago. Like don't overthink it. There are blogs with cool there are blogs with cool names like Abnormal Returns and Crossing Wall Street and you know the reform broker and whatever. But it's not like it's not necessary. If so I tell people the first thing I would do is pick something local that will set you apart for people in your local area. 
you know, whether it's like a ge- geological formation or a river or a mountain or a street fair that happens every year or whatever, something that like people in the area will find because that's the first people that are going to find you. The idea that you're going to launch a nationally read financial blog in 2017, I, I don't know. So if you do something hyper local, you don't you don't have to get every client on the in the country. You just need a couple dozen in your area. It's cool. Right. So like if you're if you're in Raleigh Durham, why are you writing for people in Hawaii? What's the point? Talk about like on the blog, you do five posts in a week. Three of them should be about investing. One of them should be about you know, I, I went to uh, I went to the Tar Heels game. One of them should be, hey, I went to this barbecue festival locally. People are going to find you through Facebook and stuff because you're mentioning that. They're not going to find you because you wrote about PE ratios. That, that like that's just the stuff that once they find you, they'll stay to read. But like you have hyper local is so much more powerful than generic. Oh, here's how I feel about equity valuations. Nobody gives a shit. You got to write about things people care about and people are interested in their community. And because like how long does it have to be? Because short. Okay. Short. No one's reading. No one reads anymore. You should not. If you're going over five. Look, this doesn't apply to you, Michael. So don't take don't take offense. It's not. I read all. I read all your stuff. Of course, mine, mine, mine are freakishly long, but should not be a, a benchmark for anyone. By the way, I, I know how you do it. I figured out your secret. I'm going to tell you in a second. But if you're going over 500 words in a post, it better be like oh, sick, sick. Like you better have the goods, because if you're just noodling and you get to 2,000 words, then you wrote five posts and you didn't know it. Now here's how you do what you do. Tell me if I'm right. So you're going from one conference to the next. You're driving. And you are talking into your phone and, and it's an app that then transposes it into text and then you go back and edit the text. Good good guess. I got you. No, it's not, but it's sort of indirectly close. Go on. The the reality, I was the child of two computer scientists. So I learned typing from like on a Commodore 64 when I was five or six years old. So I type at about 110 to 120 words a minute. Yeah, but how do you think which, that Which fast? means, well, that's basically typing at the flow of thought. So I don't dictate and edit, but I type as though I was literally just saying it to explain to someone and giving it a speech and just dump a verbal diatribe on the paper or into the computer, typing it myself. And then I go through and edit and do it the same thing. So if I type slower, I'd probably do it with dictation. But since I can type at my flow of thought, I type it real time. You type at the flow of thought. Dude, that should be the name of your book. <laughs> Typing type, at the flow of thought. At the fl- anyway, you're first of all, first of all, I, I tease. You're, you're incredible. And I learn more about the industry from your site than any of the other sites I read combined. I read you, Investment News, and I read Advisor Hub, and I've cut out and I've cut out everything else. I just don't have enough time, but I, I learn a, a ton from your site. I can't. I so I just picture you doing like the stream of consciousness into a recorder, and then editing the transcript because there's so much. I do the stream of consciousness sitting on a plane into the computer as I type it as I think it, and then yeah, all of it's from there. I go back and edit it and clean it up because it, it always sucks when you say it the first time. And, and fix it into a formal post. I mean, dude, you're a virtuoso. Don't don't change anything. But when I'm saying to people, like, write 500 words or less, I'm not saying it because there aren't more words on a topic that should be said. I'm saying it because if somebody looks at a page and they're a casual reader, I'm not talking about advisors reading your stuff. I'm saying, like, oh, a regular – moving right on. <laughs> well, that, well, if they see a block of text – 
they have to scroll three times to see the bottom of, they just won't even start it. If they could see the bottom of it from a from a an iPad, they're gonna they're gonna read it. In reality, even if you go back and actually look at how my content's evolved over the years, it was much shorter early on. Like it got longer as I got used to explaining topics in the depth that I wanted to. And I actually tested a lot early on between writing stuff shorter and writing stuff longer and figuring out like what kinds of things can I write about that are longer that people that people take up. Because again, like it's 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 a giant experimentation ground. And the and the cool thing to me about blogging in particular is, you know, God bless Google Analytics, a little creepy, but I mean, they could see everything about what's going on your site and who's reading what and who's using it and who's sharing it and all the rest. And so you get a, you know, if you just bother to look at the stats a little bit, once you get a couple of readers, it gets really apparent really fast what people are actually interested in responding to and just give them more what they want. I, I think that's, I think that's right. And look, there are some, there are some things that you have to say that just, they have to be longer. Like just by the nature of the of the subject matter, I try to be very visual. There's a lot of charts. There's there's a lot of graphics because I just feel like people want nuggets and and they don't need the dissertation. Like if I'm doing something on like stock buybacks, like they don't need me to spill everything I've ever thought about stock buybacks. Like what is the salience of talking about buybacks in the context of today? And then like if I want to like if there's something that's like all right, I really got to go back and I've done it. You know, but that's probably much less frequent because, you know, I, I kind of have a family and a and a day job. <laughs> so as we get the end here, this is a show about financial advice being successful. And what do you mean the end? We st- I didn't even know we started. This wasn't the pre-interview. This was the interview. Oh, sh- can, can I start over? No, we we've already run all like there is almost an hour and a half worth of stuff here. You know how long it's going to take me to type all this stuff up? <laughs> <laughs> all right. What do you got? So I, I like I always like to finish the our guests with this question that you know we we like to talk about success and and one of the things I've long observed is success means very different things to different people and and frankly even different things to the same person over time as like as we grow and evolve and our our priorities change and so as someone who's objectively built what I think most would call a successful and still ongoing rapidly growing business. How would you define success? Wow. I, I guess I don't I, – I guess I'm successful. I don't really look at myself as like you, – you know, when you do like – you do a podcast with Ron Carson and do podcasts with like Edelman and, and, and all these people. Like I look at them like they've made it. I guess maybe I'm on the way. I'm much younger. I started much later. So maybe I'll get there. But I, I guess I just don't – I don't see myself as like, oh, I did it. I think I'm on the way. I think I'm doing okay. And and I think there are things that we've done that are very successful, but just like on the whole, I, I just I don't think that I'm far enough along yet where I want to start saying, here's the secret to success. You know, maybe maybe like you'll get me on a podcast five years from now, maybe my answer will be different. But I, I just I'm, I might have I'm to bring not you back on the podcast in twenty twenty two to re I don't like how like how does how does Carl Richards answer that? Because he like he probably feels the same way I do, like that it like he's feels like more on a journey. He I don't think he feels like he got there yet, right? Yeah, that was that's that's Pretty similar to what he said. Had him on a couple episodes ago, so people can go back and listen. Uh, Kitsis.com slash 14 for episode 14. You can listen to Carl's episode if you missed it and then like come back to this one and compare Josh's answers to Carl. So, all right. So, I measure success as long as I'm doing better than Carl. 
I, I feel <laughs> fantastic. I'm sure Carl will appreciate. No, but that. wait. All right. So let me. But let me give you a better answer that just occurred to me. I'm really happy. So I just turned forty. I turned forty years old last month, and everyone's like, "Oh, the big one for big 40. It's like this thing where something ended. I got to tell you, and I told my story earlier in the podcast. I'm not going to go over the whole thing. I was in really bad shape when I turned thirty. Not just physically, I'm still in bad shape physically, uh, but I, like mentally and financially, I was just not in a good place. I wasn't, you know. I ha- look, I I love my wife, I have baby, I love my house. That's all. That was all fine. But career wise, I was very unsettled. I just like I had this yearning to like help clients, do the right thing. But I was in a business that just it was in direct conflict, and I was truly, truly miserable. I feel younger now turning 40 than I felt at 29 turning 30. So maybe that's like the best way that I could say, okay, to some extent, uh, I've turned I've turned it all into a success story because I, I really love what I do. I don't spend a lot of time during each day doing things I don't want to do. I don't have any problems with anyone. Like I'm not like in, in feuds with people. Everyone that works here, like we're, we're friends. I could grab a beer with people. Like So I, I think maybe that's the way to, to think about success is that I wake up. I know I'm going to help people. I know I'm going to say interesting things. I get to do my show. I get to hang out with with Michael Batnick. We share an office. I get to hang out with Barry, talk on the phone with Ben. Like that's to me, that's success. Well, and you know, there's a there's a fantastic. I'm on the Kitsies podcast. That you're on the Kits podcast. I mean, there's a fantastic reminder me. I, I like. I heard. I first heard this from as a Bill Gates quote. I don't know if he's really the origin of it. That there's this saying that most people overestimate what they can do in one year, but underestimate what they can do in 10 years, that it's always fascinating that, you know, like almost no matter where you are, if you feel like you're in a tough spot and it feels like it's going to be a long haul to get out of it, that you look back at like, go back 10 years ago at how different your world was from where it is today. And just think about like how much different and hopefully better if you're not in a good place that it can be over 10 years. Like it's amazing how much can change you in a decade it's it's not it's night and day what is it uh march 2007 10 years ago was bear stearns going out of business yeah and oh, yeah, uh, almost exactly <laughs> and i and i walked and i walked around the corner from the bear stearns building i was in the helmsley building two, i was in 230 park and bear was like the three something madison it was literally around the corner and we were like retail brokers looking at bear stearns folding and saying oh well then we're definitely screwed you know, if, if Bear's going on there, and this is pre-AIG, pre-Lehman, pre-WAMU, pre-Wachovia, people forget. These were the biggest firms in finance. Bank of America was probably going. Merrill was definitely going. They latched onto each other like two drowning, you know. So that's where I was 10 years ago to the day. Bear was uh, March 17th. 2007 they got an offer for $2 from JP Morgan it was like it was like a, they got a middle finger and people were walking out of buildings all over Manhattan with boxes of their stuff so that's where i was 10 years ago so you're 100% right it's amazing how night and day and of course we're about to crash again now that i'm saying that out loud <laughs> well on on that uplifting note ho- hopefully we haven't <laughs> Doomed the financial markets to to wrap up our interview. But thank you, Josh Brown, for joining us on the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My pleasure. Thank you for having me, Michael. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View 
at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.